I am Joseph Kronberg, and this is the Daily Giddy Up Podcast, focusing on inspiration, motivation, and positivity to guide you towards making small, mindful decisions that can have profound impacts on your life. Welcome back, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, the Giddy Up community. I appreciate you listening in. We have an honored guest with us today, Dr. J. Corey Williams. Him and I go back a ways, long time. He's a very good friend of mine. We've grown up together, went to college together, and he's now a psychiatrist doing great work with youth and underprivileged children in inner cities. So really, really in for a treat. And also just kicking around how Corey is able to use his mindset and the training that he's done as an amateur bodybuilder, as a valedictorian in the kinesiology school, graduating top of his class to getting scholarship to John Hopkins and doing significant work and making strides in, in the field, both at Yale and UPenn. Corey, what's up, brother? How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, man. Thank you for showing up. With that rap sheet, I think you got giddy up written all over you, tried and true. So appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it's, it's a little surreal. I feel like who would have thought when we first met at undergrad orientation that we'd be on a podcast <laughs> together? I know. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> And what Corey's referencing there is once upon a time in our youth of our childhood, this is even before freshman year of college, we had orientation, both of us going to the University of Maryland. And we also feel for the kids who are probably not going to make it to college this semester, so we can attribute some of that to this. We were in an orientation class. I was sitting in the back of the row, paying attention to what kids going to college pay attention to, and it's not the teacher. (laughs) And in walks uh, Mr. Corey about 45 minutes late, and he's like, all right, I got to sit in the back of the class. This guy's sitting alone in the back of the class. I think I can... uh, can get along with him, but I'll let him tell the rest of that story. <laughs> well, well, no, I, I think the beauty of that story is we both gravitated to the other slacker in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Together you go far, alone you go fast. Yeah, so look, I appreciate you coming on. I look forward to hearing, you know, what your daily routine is like. And I'm curious, how do you kickstart your day? Do you have a morning routine? How does Dr. J. Corey Williams start his day? Yeah, it's a great question because I feel like that changes and evolves over time depending on the context and then depending on like the demands in your life, right? Like my thinking about college, my routine was much different than it is now. But these days, like the first thing I do, and it's probably not best practice, but the first thing I do is usually read some news. Mm -hmm. And I think because, I mean, there's just so much going on right now and I do try to stay informed and I mean, both just broadly, like terms of politics or whatever, but in terms of coronavirus, like patients ask me questions about coronavirus all the time. Right. I'm sort of I'm in a position to sort of be helpful to people as much as I can. I'm not a virologist or like a medical internal medicine doctor, but I still need to be kind of informed for people. So I do try to catch the latest kind of headlines as soon as I wake up, just for like five or 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would necessarily recommend that to people because sometimes you get like a really awful headline and just kind of screws up your mood for the day. <laughs> right, right, right. Which is what the giddy up is trying to push away, right? Is that negative yeah. mindset, negative mind space. And I think to your point, while it's important to stay up on times and, and focus on, on current events and make sure you know what's going on, I think it's ever more important to make sure that if it does mess up your day, that you kind of know how to categorize and appropriately silo your time and kickstarting your day in the right way is, is how you set yourself up for success and achievement of not only long-term goals, but just what you're looking to accomplish for that day. And you kind of touched on the growth capacity of routine, right? 
And I think that's important. The whole point in life is not only do you get older and you don't have a choice about that, but you do have a choice about how you grow, how you grow as a person, how you grow as an individual, how you grow in character. And I think all of those pieces of the puzzle kind of match up to where you become in the long run, right? You don't see it happening on a day in and day out basis, but as people grow up, people change. And as people grow up, people have different views on the world and different views of life. So I'm curious how your sort of childhood or things that resonate with you from when you were younger have played into like some of the longer term mindset and dedication and consistency that you've applied to your successes in life. So before we get there, let me finish the morning routine though. Oh, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Wait, yeah. you don't just read the news, man? You got other stuff to do? <laughs> So this is probably the more interesting part. I've also learned that if I don't get my workout in in the morning, I'm probably not going to get it in because I'm just going to be tired and kind of exhausted and like thinking about other things as the day goes on. So I absolutely have to get it in in the morning. And obviously like there's no gym. I'm in DC. Gyms aren't open yet. And there's no gyms out here. And I've been like going to a gym for so long that it's been a huge adjustment, like working out from home. Wait, you spend time in a gym? I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) say Corey and I used to spend a significant amount of hours together working out and training, and we'll get there, but yeah. to the story, body yeah. there, of Corey. So I, go, I immediately, so after I finish my news, I immediately go into the kitchen and make like a pre-workout shake, and then I down the shake, and I do like a, home, a circuit from home, essentially, with like push-ups, pull-ups, and some ab routine. It usually takes me like 30 minutes to an hour to get through. Like nothing special, pretty much just like a prison workout yeah. <laughs> with like... Well, we are kind of all in prison in a, in a way. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I have like a pull-up bar in my home and like some basic weights. I do something pretty quick just to kind of feel good and feel like a burn. You know, hop in the shower, have a post-workout shake, and then I'm like sit down on my laptop and like start my day essentially. Good question for you. When you say you feel a burn, you're working out to sweat or you're working out to get your heart rate up? How do you feel like you kind of like, or is it different every day? What's sort of your tone for, okay, check the box. I got in the workout that I wanted or a good workout. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm just going for like completeness. Like I just want to make sure that I finished what I sat out, sought out to do. Right. And in terms of feel like I'm not, yeah, I'm not doing really, I'm, I mean, I'm getting my heart rate up to get warmed up, but right now it's just like whether or not like the muscles that I'm trying to work out, like feel fatigue. Right. So if they feel fatigue, I feel the good that I was productive. Right. And I think that's an important point you made. You finish what you set out to do. That's part of accomplishing some of those early morning goals or tasks that can then set you up to say, okay, these small wins, small victories of saying, all right, well, now you turn to the next thing. And you're like, accomplish that. I'm going to go accomplish this. And I think yeah. that's really important, especially in the morning when you kind of are first uh, setting the tone for the day. Yeah, for sure. And that is something that works for me. And I don't know that I have any sort of wisdom, but just getting that in in the morning, like, Obviously, my energy is better. My mood's better. I feel like I'm thinking more clearly. And also, I just did something that was pretty difficult. And then, like, that informs, like, it makes the rest of the day easier because I started out my day doing something I didn't necessarily want to do, but it was really hard. Right. So it just makes other things, doing other things I don't want to do easier. <laughs> well, it gives you, you're building up the confidence in a way of saying, yeah, you know, yeah. you know <laughs> rolling a snowball uphill, it gets bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, you're getting stronger and stronger. Yeah, yeah. Just touching back on childhood, right? Like you've had a story, successful career. You've been an accomplished um, bodybuilder. You were top of your class in college, in the kinesiology school. 
what do you attribute those sort of like striving for successes from what you've learned as a child or how did that character or growing up build in you to bring Corey Williams to where he is today? Yeah, thanks for outlining my resume. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm trying, man. You know, people who are just tuning in don't really know the depth of the man we're talking to today. So it's important. It's important for people to understand and with context the credibility you bring not only to the mindshare space from being a psychiatrist, but also the fitness space for, from being a essentially professional athlete. Well, let me correct you there. I never was never a professional. I was an amateur. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you looked way better than I did, so... <laughs> But I mean, like you said, I think, you know, Mal being a psychiatrist, I think I, I understand, I know a little something about motivation and people's and psychology. Yeah. And I learned some about a lot of what we do is actually unconscious and mm -hmm. necessarily aware of the things that we do. So I say that to say, I'm not sure, like what, what sort of brought me to this point or what drove me to like, achieve certain accomplishments. I have a story that helps me make sense of it. Right. And like you said, so, you know, like growing up, you know, my dad raised me, my mom passed away when I was like seven. So I was pretty young. And so you start forming memories when you're like five years old or so. So I have like a couple years of conscious memories of her, mm -hmm. but mostly it was my dad that I think had the sort of most conscious influence on me. And when his wife passed away, he had like four kids, me being the youngest that he had to raise like all of a sudden by himself. And she passed pretty suddenly from brain cancer. Wow. So it happened relatively quickly. And so he was forced in a situation to be like, oh God, I got like four kids to raise by myself. Like, what the hell do I do here? And I didn't find this out till later, but he had also been dealing with some addiction issues and had just gotten his sobriety. So he was also kind of working on his sobriety at the same time of like also starting a business he started like a small kind of mom and pop limousine service. Right. You know, as a kid around the time I was born. So he's got this new business. He's just trying to work on his sobriety and getting recovery. And now his wife passes away and now he's got four kids to raise by himself. So I saw, you know, I think growing up, I saw him just work really, really hard all the time. Like as a, you know, as a limousine driver and as a business owner, he's working at oddball hours, like coming in and out of the house at like 3 a.m., He's dead tired. I could see his eyes just beat red because he's been working for days straight. Right. And just seeing that and like having that as my model of what good man, a good father is supposed to do. I think that certainly rubbed off on me. Right. Having a model of really hard work, I think it was one of the most important things that I took away from my dad. Right. Now he was <laughs> not a perfect parent like any parent. And my dad's also like a military guy. He's a pretty like masculine yeah. guy. He got me interested in working out like really young. So he signed me up to a gym when I was like 11 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like the youngest guy in the gym, like for a long time. Right. And people would always tell me like, yo, you're too young. Like you, <laughs> you're like, you're going to stunt your growth. Like, you know, there's all, there's all these like myths actually around like, if you lift weights too early, you stunt your growth. That actually turns out not to be true. Right. If you're not lifting too heavy. Right. There is a sense in which like, if you're lifting, if you're putting too much strain on your growth plates, there is a sense in which you can like interfere with them. But as long as you're lifting within reasonable weight, it's actually fine. Yeah, so I was also wrestling and playing football at the time. And the gym just started out as kind of just being, get, spending quality time with my dad. That was like our time to spend together. I'd be at school or at practice and then he would be working all day and then he'd pick me up from practice or I'd pick me up from home and then we'd go to the gym together. And that was like our father-son time. Right. 
So it became this activity that like going to the gym was like very much intertwined with like my relationship with my dad. Right. And it kind of takes away the, the negativeness of like people not want, Oh, I don't want to go work out. I don't want to do this. It's like, Oh, awesome. I get to go spend some time with my dad and it's at the gym and I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, it was, it was really powerful. Like, right. Yeah. It started off as something I love to do because I got to see my dad. It was right. our time in the day. He was also really proud of me for like working on my fitness. And then I got a lot of positive reinforcement from people when I started to like see gain. Right. And then I also noticed that I was a better football player and a better wrestler. Right. Like as time went on, I guess I got more serious about the gym and like less serious about the other sports. So, I mean, I continued to wrestle and play football into high school, but my, most of my like energy and like goals actually became about the gym. Like I wanted to get stronger and wanted to see gains there. I started to find less joy in football and wrestling. Right. Yeah. So I think when I was time, I was like 15 or so. Someone, this random guy that worked in the gym was like, hey, you should look into doing competition. You know, they have like bodybuilding competitions for teenagers. And I was like, oh, really? Like, I never knew that. So he's like, yeah, you should look into it. Like, I think you do really well. So then I just went, I went home and I just got online and started looking at like local bodybuilding competitions for teenagers. Wow. Yeah, and I, I had no idea what it was and like no yeah, one yeah. told me about it. Yeah, so I just like was like, okay, maybe I could do this. And then so for that next year, I picked a show. And then for that next year, I worked really hard. And a lot of that was like fear of losing too. Like I, want, I didn't want to lose. <laughs> you, know? you and me both, brother. <laughs> Except when I was working out with you, I always lost. So I got used to it. <laughs> So like once I registered, it's like the point of no return. Like once you register, I registered for the show. Then I was like, oh shit, like I'm actually going to do this now. Yeah. I don't and that's part of like setting challenges and yeah. goals is like, all right, boom, here's the date. This is what I'm going to do and commit my time, effort and energy to accomplish it. And that's part of the dedication. Yeah. I mean, I think that commitment piece is huge in terms of just like goals and not giving yourself a way out. Yeah, exactly. No excuses. You know, when I was 16, the first show that I did, it was like the teenage New Jersey championships. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. And I won. And I took, I also took second place in like one of the men's divisions. Yeah. So I had beat out like some of the grown men that were like competing. Wow. So I did incredibly well my first, right. my first go around. What was your mindset going in were you, and your expectation? Were you scared? Were you nervous? Were you like, I better win this, otherwise I can't work out anymore, I can't come home. You know, like, what was your headspace going into that first competition? Because I got to imagine it's pretty intimidating walking into a room of all these dudes just who have yeah. been working out for years, <laughs> and especially in the men's side of, like, okay, I'm here, I'm 15, and I'm going to rock this. I'm yeah. going to own it. Well, first of all, like, when you walk in, I mean, you've been back there, like, backstage, yeah. uh, backstage in a bodybuilding show. <laughs> Gets this interesting. <laughs> Just this overwhelming smell of baby oil and tan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know what color that guy is, but I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> like painted himself up. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I was just kind of, I was nervous. I was thinking I was taking it all in. It's also really nerve wracking to be back there because everyone's nervous. Everyone's like pumping up and like looking at each other and like feeling. Oh, sizing, sizing each other up, you know? Exactly. It's super nerve wracking. But I think in the front of my mind, I was really lucky. I had a coach, actually. I had a personal coach. Yeah. Was a guy who was a bodybuilder. He was retired, but he was a bodybuilder back in the day professionally. And he, like, took an interest in me and was like, hey, you're doing the show. Like, I'd love to train you for it. 
So I was like, hell yeah, hell yeah. So he really walked me through like all the dieting, all of the routines that I was supposed to be doing, walked me through like how I was supposed to, what I was supposed to do that day, the the oiling, the tanning. And so I, he was by my side the entire time. So I really just didn't have to worry about too much because I knew that he was just going to tell me what to do. And all I had to do was just you know, follow directions. Right. So I actually wasn't feeling too, I wasn't freaking out too much because I, I had him and he was just a great mentor and coach. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing on my mind was just like, obviously I wanted to perform well and my family was there. My dad was there. Like my sisters came out, my aunt. So I wanted to make my family proud. So, yeah. So there was, it was a mixture of kind of nervousness, but feeling at ease because my coach was there and also just wanting to make my family proud of me. Right. I mean, you were accomplishing something pretty big and I think it shows testament to having support in the capacity that you had as well as sort of a mentor or, or leadership to kind of guide you through the steps you were taking. I think that goes a long way to having a positive mindset to achieving goals, which some people may or may not always have, but the giddy up is trying to build that community of positivity where people can lean on each other to sort of try and accomplish things that's a little bit outside the comfort zone. Yeah, for sure. And I think probably the concepts that you're trying to get at is I think sometimes your kind of fitness goals are just an analogies for the rest of your life. Right. Definitely. Like once you've shown a level of like commitment or in discipline in like your fitness life, it makes it much easier to do that in your professional life or your romantic life even. Right. And it allows, it allows you to, to have an understanding for also accomplishment because you were, were putting kind of hard deadlines in the road and then getting to them. And the only way you got to them to be, to win at it was to commit yourself to it. And, you know, I dude, we were in the gym for countless hours in college and your commitment to your craft of you know, whether it was studying or training or even your nutrition, right? You know, I remember you're like, I can only have this amount because I'm trying to lean out or I'm trying to cut weight or I'm trying or I'm trying to bulk up. And I'm like, dude, like, how much you eat? You know, it's, I would be fascinated to hear a little bit more around like the science behind some of the things you're doing and the nutrition that you're digging into. And and how that played into your mindset as well, right? Like we, yeah. we would both be walking around campus with the, with gallons of water, and you know, yeah, yeah. across <laughs> the mall, you're, I'm like, oh, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, I you know I was really lucky because I think my dad sort of knew the basics. Right. Like, my dad taught me the basics of like how to work out, and then this guy, this mentor that I had, Keith, he really showed me. He taught me how to diet for a competition, which is a very specific. It's not okay. something normal people should do <laughs> yeah, I, I was like Corey you're all right bro <laughs> you're all right. Yeah. and establishing that routine so one of the hardest parts actually was just the lifestyle that the diet commanded right absolutely so especially being, in college yeah exactly well even in high school like I'd have to wake up super early like four or five a.m sometimes like make my meals for the day, which would be like a lot of grilled chicken, vegetables, tuna, rice, brown rice, things right. like whole foods. Yeah. Yeah. And I was eating every two to three hours. So that would be like seven to eight meals a day. Yeah. I do that too, but I'm not training for anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you do that now, man. Uh, <laughs> I think I was more unsuccessfully. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So like being a 15, 16 year old and just like doing that routine. And then I go to the gym in the morning before school, go to school and then go to practice or work or whatever I had that day and then go to the gym. I mean, it was a highly like regimented routine. Right. And I had fun on the weekend, you know, I'd make sure to like hang out with friends or whatever on the weekends, but having kind of exposure. And I think I do, I owe a lot to the sport 
and what the sport taught me. Because once I got to college, I was already learned how to self-manage and how to be self-directed and time management and how to just get things done. With- You're already disciplined. Yeah, exactly. I got interested in anatomy and like the science behind nutrition and science behind in human oh. physiology, like in high school too. So I was always reading, I was reading a ton. No, you know, I always had the obligatory men's fitness magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, remember men's fitness? I feel yeah, like yeah. I feel like that was a thing back then. Like were remember you- magazines? Are those even yeah. a thing anymore? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean those are a lot of things that you know compound over years, whether it's understanding yeah. nutrition, learning how to eat, being disciplined, working out, only benefit your life in the long run that people need to learn or or resonate with or aren't exposed to from a younger age. So it's really understanding that making small decisions like you've done will allow you to kind of achieve greater things in the long run. And maybe they're not the easiest, right? They're probably the harder of the decisions. But I think in doing so, you set yourself up not for success, but for the potential of the outcome to be greater than if you didn't do the things that added up to make sense. Talking about all this success and outcomes and stuff like that, I definitely wasn't at the top of my class. I definitely wasn't the valedictorian of my school and the business school of Robert A. Smith. But at the same time, you were, and that's super impressive. You were the uh, valedictorian in uh, the kinesiology school as you were studying to be pre-med and on a really, really strong path to medical school with significant offers and scholarships. I'm curious what your thought process was and, you know, your decision to kind of sidestep that pretty direct path to obviously becoming a doctor and the next things that follow with that, whether it's money lucratively or helping other people inherently, which is something I know you're passionate about. Curious what your decision to take a detour from that path and go help work with children and teach young children and get accepted to the prominent Teach for America program. Yeah, let me just address a couple of things you said, because I don't want anybody who like knew me back then to like accuse us of misinformation. So technically, the School of Public Health did not have a Valley Victorian. Okay. I won, won the award for the most outstanding student. Oh. <laughs> Dude, I can't even spell Valley Victorian, so you win. You know what I mean? Any, you can come after me. J. Corey Williams did not declare Valley Victorianship. He is yeah. the most outstanding student, and that is <laughs> deservingness of being the valedictorian. I can peel back the curtain on that, too, which is yeah. when I left Jersey to come to Maryland for undergrad, you know, I left Jersey really happy because I didn't want to be there anymore. Right, I mean, right. there was a lot going on with my family, and yeah. we were moving around a lot, and we I was living with my sister for some time. And for a little bit of time, we were like, I got evicted from our place and we were kind of staying in a hotel. Wow. And all this while trying to work and do sports in school and yeah. it's just hard. Yeah. And I, yeah. It was like, I never really got down on myself for it. I never sort of like looked at it as I was really worse off than anyone else. Like I always mm-hmm. thought of myself as pretty fortunate, but I was, my relationship with home was that it was not something that I wanted to go back to. Right. So then when I got to Maryland, I was like, yeah, like I have to make a life for myself out here because I don't want to go back home. And as soon as I left home, like my dad was just moving around a ton and there was really no, nowhere for me to go back to. And then I had to take out some student loans and stuff. And so I always figured that at some point the funding was going to run out and I might not be able to finish. So I need to make a life for myself out here, whether it be getting a job or making the best out of my opportunities. There was just a lot at stake. 
So I felt like we talked about before, like having the values of sort of hard work and discipline, but also just feeling like I can't go back home and just like kind of having a... It's on you. It's on, you're on your own. Yeah, exactly. Whatever your life will become is what you're going to make of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a sense in which a lot of it was a little fear driven being, you know, I have to make something or else I'll be back home, like not doing anything. Yeah. I think that motivated a lot of my sort of academic success. Because I just knew that in the back of my mind, I, part of me worried that I wasn't gonna be able to finish school because I like couldn't afford it. Right. And then it turned out I, they were able to find some financial aid for me as I like progressed through school. Right. So I was like really grateful for that. But so yeah, and I think you know around the time of junior senior year when I was like trying to decide what I was gonna do, I had been taking pre med classes and was knew I was interested in science and medicine and had be interested in health and being a physician sort of made sense with like what I'm good at and like what I'm interested in. But I started to work with one of my work study program. So like all the, all the poor kids in college do work study because you like need, <laughs> you yeah. need the stipend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was working with kids. It's also a good experience for the record. To be oh, honest. for sure. Oh, of course. Yeah. One of the <laughs> was um, working with after school programs, working with after school programs at a local elementary school. Right. Um, it was, I don't know if you remember like in Belt, what in the um, Greenbelt? It's like over right. by. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly you know, a sort of low resource community, mostly black and brown kids. And the program was fourth and fifth graders who were struggling in reading and math. And I would like take the bus over to the elementary school to like do after school tutoring. Right. And I got like a stipend that was like a work study. And I absolutely loved it. I would have done it for free. And the kids were great. And I just saw like the impact that I was having on just a handful of kids that I was working with. And I was like really inspired by that and just feeling like, wow, like I really enjoyed this and I want to see what kind of difference I can have. At the time, I was also reading a lot and I was reading a lot of like, it's going to sound cheesy, but like I was reading a lot of MLK. Right. And I was just reading a lot of philosophy too. And ultimately I was just feeling like I really needed to do something that was of service to the community. And based on my experiences, I had sort of decided that a life that's assimilated to the community where I'm being of service to the community is a, is a much more fulfilling life than trying to just be an individual success, whatever that means. You know, what's really powerful that kind of resonates with me and what you're saying is you wanting to give back to people who have less when you yourself had little to give. And I right. think that's a really, really powerful and refreshing perspective, to be honest, with the capacity of society today where dollar signs drive decisions versus fulfillment and um, right, right. you know causes that that really will bring value to your life in the long run so I think that's super super powerful and super super important for people to understand and resonate with that everybody has something to give and it's people that make the decision to give and to help others is how society will get through things yeah especially like in this moment like what could be more important than having a sense of collectivity or a sense of togetherness? It's like exactly what's necessary to like get us through this pandemic. And if everyone is just sort of doing their own thing, then it's just not going to work. But yeah, so I just kind of decided that early on. I think my other family members, my dad, my my brothers and sisters had been more sort of interested and consumed by material culture, superficiality and driving nice cars and jewelry and having this. I saw, and no disrespect to them if they ever listened to this, But I just saw that that life really wasn't for me and I didn't really care about those things. And I also saw how those being consumed by those things can lead to a lot of unhappiness and unfulfillment and emptiness. 
I just kind of consciously decided that I was going to dedicate my life to being of service to Black, poor, Black and brown communities in whatever way I can. And that was going to be the life that was most meaningful to me. Yeah. And almost be that resource that you felt you may or may not have had, but be that, be a resource to, to kids who need it. And, and I guess yeah. that's what drove the Teach for America decision to kind of further ingrain yourself in, in that sort of educational kind of capacity yeah. or role model capacity to younger children, black and brown. Yeah, exactly. And so right around graduation, I got approached by one of the Teach for America recruiters. It was like, hey, if you really like to do this work, then you could do this program. You don't have to get a traditional like education degree. You could just do this program and you'll have your own classroom. So I was like, sweet. Ended up getting placed in a middle school here in Northeast, a small K through eight school called Wheatley. And I was like the middle school teacher, middle school science teacher. And I was also... (laughs) Were you Mr. Williams? No, the kids call me Mr. Wills. Mr. Wills, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, Mr. Wills. Mr. Wills is everybody's favorite. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, and I was also, I was like kind of doing a little bit of after school stuff, but like coached the football team for a little while and then do a little, like had like a little science club too after school. So doing like teaching and the after school work that I had been doing before was awesome. Really, I mean, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done with my life was trying to figure out like how to be a good teacher for these kids who, for a lot of kids who had a lot of behavioral problem and a lot of emotional difficulties because of trauma and because they're come from a structurally oppressed neighborhood. Kids were homeless and hungry. There was a lot of issues just in one room and some kids that had substance use issues already in their young lives. So, you know, I think teaching in historically oppressed communities, it's a different challenge because the kids just have more on their plate. The kids have more challenges. So how to support them and also just do my job well, how to like lesson plan well every day, how to deliver really good lessons every day. It was really, really stressful. Yeah, a lot of pressure, right? To kind of like put something out there that you hope that these kids who aren't really engaged to begin with, you know, you can break through some of those barriers to say and start connecting with them in a way that you can maybe impact, you know, if it's one of their lives or all their lives. But, you know, that's what you're kind of setting out to do. And that's that's a really stressful and, and hard Sort of uh, obstacle to overcome. You know, I don't want to mischaracterize my kids. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of kids who really were engaged, and just like any other school, you have a handful of kids that just aren't just have a hard time learning. Yeah, I just mean like the stress and trauma of poverty and living in oppressed neighborhoods and how that manifests in the classroom. 100%. So that was really hard. I think it ta- that taught me a lot about like sort of what poverty and trauma kind of look like in the classroom, what the role of a teacher is, what the role of a school is. Right. And so I got more interested, I got interested in like how to support those kids better that have behavioral problems and and learning challenges and things like that. So I took that interest into medical school because I ultimately wanted to have kind of a broader impact. I mean, I loved teaching, but it was definitely not a long-term thing for me. It was like just burnout city constantly. And I just don't think I could have sustained that life. Want to focus more on the research and science part of it and kind of community interventions and public health interventions. So I took that interest in like child mental health and child development into medical school at Hopkins and then ended up specializing in child psychiatry. So here I am. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of come full circle because now I'm sort of back in not the same neighborhood, but kind of right outside the neighborhood. And I'm working on like developing community programs for kids and working on mental health programs and school-based services and doing some research and seeing patients as well. So it's cool to feel like there's been a 
an end point, an end game to like, yeah. the <laughs> you know, many struggles and challenges ahead. I'm just, I'm pretty new to this role and like still getting settled, but it's, it's, yeah. I'm really happy. Yeah. It's probably a really interesting time to be sort of working and helping children in a psychiatric capacity where you're trying to understand and curious your views of the new world order that we're living in. And, and, you know, I'm sure adults as well. What have you seen or what are your thoughts around the lack of engagement, the inability to connect on a personal basis um, in person? Like, how do you think some of those things will resonate into the future and the status of mental health for both adults and children who are still developing? You mean like the transition to like telehealth or, or virtual school? Like yeah, I mean, you know, kids not being able to interact, right, and learn lessons that they would be able to learn and all of a sudden, you know, isolated it at home and same thing for parents, parents working at home. You know, that's a huge mental burden and stress yeah. and just behavioral ch- pattern of change that society is starting to come to norms and terms with. And from your perspective, curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think there's a whole book to be written on that. <laughs> I'm going to go plenty, man. You should get started. <laughs> But, you know, maybe I'll sh- I can, I'll share a story that I think is actually illustrative of, of the point. So I was seeing kids in Philly around when the shit hit the fan in March. Yeah. Apartment totally went to telehealth. So we went totally to telehealth services. So kids that I've been seeing for the past two years in Philly, I'm now seeing them with a screen. You know, school was canceled. So it was this weird transition of like, hey, you know me. I know you were typically in my office, but this is weird. But we'll, let's figure it out. We'll just keep we'll keep the work going as best we can. Right. And I had one kid, one kid in Philly, a nine-year-old that I've been seeing, just a kid with some anxiety, but really bright kid, super like stud student, just struggling with anxiety and panic. And so we had been doing therapy and some medications. And then the pandemic hit and he didn't have that routine of school that kind of helped him feel successful and helped him to feel normal. And the online work was pretty easy for him, actually. He would get it done in like an hour. Right. And he'd be at home just kind of twiddling his thumbs. Interesting. With nothing to do. And his parents would try to engage him in like activities, but they also had to work. His mom's a teacher and dad was like a professor. But they had their own thing going on. So he was just this really anxious kid that needed to be engaged. And now he's at home like with pretty much nothing to do. And a month or so goes by of this. And he's getting so sad and depressed that he's in his room and decides that he wants to kill himself and tries to jump out of a window. And luckily his dad was there and kind of swooped in and like saved him. But he just like the stress and anxiety of being stuck with his family. I mean, he had a really loving family, but it was just like, I was just really hard for him to be inside with his family for so long. Right. So when I saw him, when I talked to him about it, I was like, you know, what was going through your mind in that moment? And he was like, you know, Dr. Williams, like just the thought of being stuck with my family for the next six months, it makes me want to kill myself. Wow. And I was like, as a nine-year-old saying that. Wow. So it was pretty powerful. And, you know, it was, it was pretty illustrative of just the stress and strain right. that can be under. Now I'll say like that didn't, you know, that's, that's a pretty extreme story. Right. It really depends on the kid. So this kid is someone who succeeds in school and needs school to feel good and successful and normal. Some kids are really anxious and hate school. And I had some of those kids too, and they were actually really happy. Right. 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 The other side of the coin. For the first month or so, they were doing great. And then eventually the stresses of being inside and dealing with their family much more frequently than they typically would kind of sets in too. So it ebbed and flowed. Like there was times when they were doing great, times where they were really struggling. 
So I think it, yeah, it really depends on the kid. But I'll say, you know, in terms of remote learning, I think overall it's causing a wider kind of division between socioeconomic groups and, and racial groups. Yeah. There's a difference between a highly motivated junior and senior in, in high school who goes to a well-resourced neighborhood, well-resourced school to read online and do online learning, whereas like a poor kid who maybe has one device to share with a multi-generational family with lots of siblings. Right. That, have their own personal space, for example, have their own personal device. And if you're younger, it's much harder to do, it's much harder to be a self-motivated, self-directed learner. That's a long, long answer to say it depends on the kid and their stage of development, like how it's going to affect them. But overall, it's definitely driving more and more disparities in educational outcomes and mental health outcomes too. Yeah. So it's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Look, and you know, the reality is, is even the people who have said they're doing well and think that it's things are okay for themselves subconsciously there's always things happening behind the scenes and and i'm sure you could speak better better to it than i can that people may not recognize but eventually come to the surface because this is a significant event and a life-changing event and i think a globally changing event and it won't go away um, in a similar way to like a 9-11 impact it's all of our lives and it's one form or another i think this is a similar event to that and for a lot of people and especially younger people this is the first occurrence of what some type of call catastrophic event or global impacting event so i think people need to be mindful and if you feel like you need to have someone to talk to reach out to people and, and make sure that you do have that support that that kind of can be there for you. I know we're kind of wrapping up a little bit, but I couldn't leave our audience without sort of a couple of things that you thought would be sufficient takeaways or actionable steps toward, you know, just making mindful decisions of taking your mindset and sharing that with others and coming from your background and how you grew up and, you know, all the way to where you are now and really kind of forging your own path on your own, um, I think is a way for people to really resonate with some of that. Good question. I don't, yeah. And again, I hesitate because I don't think I have any sort of wisdom. I mean, I think I've been really lucky and I've worked really hard, but a lot of people work hard and don't succeed. Yeah. yeah. So it could be as simple as eat grilled chicken after 12. (laughs) Everyone knows you love your lean, mean grilled chicken, bro. (laughs) No, I would say like to get back to the story, like be accountable to someone. Yeah. You know, whether it's a partner or a spouse or people or a community be a resource yeah yeah we're thinking we have to move away from this idea that we are just islands in and of ourselves that is like be successful or live or be nourished by just thinking of ourselves as, as these grand individuals that can accomplish anything with our own minds like we need each other <laughs> yeah. we need community we need support we all need support at times we all go through challenges yeah, so Whoever that is, whether it be your kids or family or community, like be accountable to somebody, you know, be assimilated to someone. I think that's really powerful. And your story is beyond powerful. And I'm super honored to have you come on here and tell it and open up. And I think you've really allowed people to understand your mindset, your drive, your passion, you know, not only for yourself, but your selflessness towards others. And it really provides a good perspective for obstacles that are in in my life and other people's lives and that you've overcome in your life. If you don't know why Corey's one of my good friends, this is definitely <laughs> a testament to it. Uh, his character is tried and true. 
And if I ever needed anything, I can know I can give him a call and I would take his advice and be accountable to somebody, call somebody who you haven't spoken to and just uh, say hello. So Dr. Williams, with that, I want to say thank you. And I appreciate the time. No, thank you, man. And obviously anything you need, um, always reach out. I'm always here and I'm really fortunate, lucky to have you as a friend. Yeah, man. It's definitely a, a mutually respected and appreciated relationship. And it really has been from day one. So thank you. You're pretty good at this interview stuff, man. You should do this for a living. I know. I know. I'm trying to start this company. I, I don't know if, you, if you've heard of it, but you, you sign up for our newsletter, get on our Instagram, become a brand ambassador because you, my friend, are the definition of giddy up. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. If you appreciate the people we bring on the show, please take 30 seconds to leave a rating and review.